Blog Talk Radio. New Year Boxing fans, welcome to the first edition of the New Year for the Bread and Red Real Boxing Talk Show. I'm your host, Ismael Abdusalam of BeatsBoxingMayhem.com. Glad to have you all here. You're now Bread and Red Real Boxing Talk with Ismael You get two intros. So welcome again. This is Ismael of BeatsBoxingMayhem.com, your host today for the Bread and Red Real Boxing Talk Show. Uh, let me bring in my first co-host, uh, trainer of Julian J. Rock Williams, junior middleweight contender and probably soon-to-be champion, uh, Stephen Breadman Edwards. Bread, how are you doing today? Bread is still dialing in on the line. You know, hello, listeners. This is Giandra, of course, GiandraLaBuffBadCulture.net. We are waiting for Bread to dial in on the show, so he will be joining us in just a moment, Ismael. Sorry about that. No problem. And while we're waiting for Bread, I also have to let you guys know that Coach Red of Team Crawford, he is actually on a flight headed to New York, so he will be hopefully trying to join us within the hour. If not, we're going to hold it down for him. As you guys know, his man Crawford will be facing Hank Lundy on February 27th at MSG. So we're going to talk a little bit about that fight because there's been a little bit of, um, I don't know if want to call it controversy, but disappointment that Crawford, number one, didn't get the Pacquiao fight, and then number two, is fighting what some people consider a lesser opponent in Lundy. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, who's to blame, if anyone is to blame, and really what people want Crawford to do. You know, what can he do in a situation like this when it seems to be he's the one being avoided? So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Also, we're going to touch on another avoided fighter, Golovkin, his situation with Billy Joe Saunders, really trying to pay the man to get in the ring with him. Uh, We also hear Canelo's in the mix with that, so we're going to see what's going to go on with that. Also, we have to talk about Andre Ward, another guy who's trying to get an opponent. Uh, it's not looking too good at the moment. Sullivan Barrera is playing hardball. So if he continues to play hardball, what other options does Ward have? We're going to touch on that. Also, we're going to touch on a little bit of mythical matchups. Um, we're going to talk about the matchup with Andre Ward, how he stacks up against some of the all-time great super middleweights. Also, we're going to go back in time and do a couple matchups in the junior middleweight division. So I think you guys will appreciate that. Also, we have to talk about some of these, uh, I don't even know if you want to call them competitive matchups. I call them massacres that we have on deck for January. You know, we have Pascal Kovalev 2 coming up. We also have Deontay Wilder defending his WBC title against Alter Spilka. And we also have Danny Garcia fighting uh, Robert Guerrero, and that's going to be taking place toward the end of the month. So those are considered one-sided matchups, but do the underdogs have any shot of pulling it off? You know, Brett is going to weigh in on that. We also want to talk about some of the other PBC matchups that we have coming up with Amir Mansour and Dominic Brazil. Also, Charles Martin is going to be having his first title shot for the IBS title against Glasgow, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. But before we go into all that, let me bring in my illustrious uh, co-host, Mr. Stephen Breadman Edwards. Brett, how are you doing tonight, man? Hey, hey, what's going on, my man? Glad to have you on. Glad to have you on. So we're going to go right into it. Uh, before you came on, we were talking a little bit about Terrence Crawford's upcoming matchup with Hank Lundy. As I'm sure you know, some people are not happy with the matchup. Some people are cool with it. Some people are going back and forth on it, saying that it's a letdown. How much of that do you think stems from the fact that some of us thought that he had a good chance of possibly landing the Pacquiao bout? And as a trainer, because you've been in a similar situation where you thought possibly Julian had that matchup in the bag with Austin Trout, you know, shook his hand on live TV, thought it was in the bag, didn't come off. How do you get your fighter to refocus again when they have such a life-changing matchup that they think they're going to get and then it doesn't come off? 
how do you get refocused after a disappointment like that? Well, you know what? Um, if a fighter gets so let down where, you know, um, he can't perform anymore because his sights were set on one guy, then that's not the fighter that you need to be training in the first place. Obviously, it's a letdown, and, you know, Pacquiao is a life-changing fight, but, you know, um, I kind of have my guys more uh, focused on certain goals instead of fighting certain fights. You know what I'm saying? For example, you know, um, I don't know where Red and um, Omax's goals are with Terrence, but Julian wants to make the Hall of Fame. He wants to be the um, lineal champion at 154, and he wants to break Terry Norris's defense record. So, you know, he doesn't, he's not obsessed with fighting anybody in particular. You know what I mean? So we kind of keep our eyes on the goals. But, you know, we're, the fighters are human beings. You know, I'm sure it is a letdown um, that Crawford didn't get the Pacquiao fight. And the fans and people on social media, they're just so brutal. And they come up with these opinions and they act like they know what's going on behind the scenes and they have absolutely no idea. And they start just blaming people. And, you know, last year people, you know, kind of talked that Terrence didn't have a significant fight. And then this year when he can't get a significant fight, you know, well, I'm not going to say not a significant fight, but the huge pay-per-view fight, then they complain that he's fighting Hank Lundy. So it's like, damn, if you do... And damn if you don't, but the guy still has to make a living and he still has to fight who's willing to fight him. And it's better to be in the public's eye and take those kind of fights than to not fight at all. Because if you do that, you know what they'll do? They'll criticize you and say, man, you're acting like Amir Khan. You're chasing fights and you can't ever get them and then you're being inactive. So, you know, I just noticed that the boxing critics are the roughest ones because no matter what you do, they criticize you. Because I watch the criticism that Amir Khan gets for chasing Pacquiao Mayweather and he can't get the fight. And then they criticize a kid like Crawford for saying, all right, if I can't get Pacquiao, I'm just going to stay busy and fight, you know, the best available guy. And they criticize that. So I don't know, man. It's just, you know, you just got to just kind of at the end of the day, you got to have blinders on when it comes down to stuff like that. Right. And then I guess you also have the decision to make. How much do you want to engage the media? Do you want to try and get the media on your side? Do you want to try and launch a media campaign to change the perception out there? Do you feel that's worthwhile to do, or do you think it's better just to keep your mouth shut and fight, and that's the best way to change people's minds? Um, I, I think you have to do both. You know, if you're a fighter, you're a public figure, you have to interact. You know, we are in the age of social media, and not just social media, but just media in general. You know, you, you, you need the platform for the fans and for people to know different things about you. But at the end of the day, you can't let the media control your career choices. So you have to find a happy medium, but you definitely need them. You definitely need the print. You know, um, there's there's no superstar popular fighter that does not have some type of uh, – media push behind them. So you need it. You know, you just can't let them control your every action. And, you know, you got to take the good with the bad because you'll go from being a prospect to a suspect in a minute, you know, with the media, they they go up and down. So you just got to just, you know, you just got to just be a professional about it and just understand that, that, that not everybody's going to like you and not everybody's going to agree with every decision. Going to the matchup, how do you see that fight going between Crawford and Lundy? I think it's a good fight. You know, Lundy is um, he's an honorary kid. He's very confident. Um, he fights anybody. He hasn't won his big fights, but he hasn't been blown out in them either. You know, obviously Crawford is the favorite, and obviously Crawford, you know, should probably win the fight. But, you know... I mean, we've seen some fights on HBO that's of this caliber. You know, I don't I don't think it's like a one-round fight. You know, I think it's a um, competitive fight where Crawford kind of separates himself over over time. But I think it's a good fight. I really do. Um, I know Lundy hasn't, um, you know, he was a 35-pounder, but he's a big guy, and he actually started his career out at 140. You know, so I don't think it's much of a a, a size difference. I know Crawford's taller, but actual size, you know, and they're walking around weights and things like that. I don't think it's a huge size difference. Um, 
you know, either guy has a big advantage in that way. But I do, um, I think that uh, uh, it'll be an exciting fight. I think it'll be very, very intense because Lundy's an intense guy. Crawford's intense too. He's just not a big talker. So I think um, um, I think we're going to look for a good fight. I think it'll be good promotion. You know, I think Lundy's going to talk a good game and aggravate um, Crawford. And I think, you know, I think it'll be worthwhile. I think it'll be a decent fight. You know, it's not a trash fight at all. Now, looking on the other side of the equation, looking at Pacquiao, he selected Timothy Bradley for a rubber match. They're going to fight a lot of people. We're not ecstatic about that fight happening, but if you look behind the details, you can look on the surface, number one, and see why Pacquiao might have decided to take this fight, or Bob Arum might have decided to take this fight. They have history. They've done good pay-per-view numbers. And on Pacquiao's side, it's just somebody that he's arguably beaten twice already, so he probably has that confidence. But looking at this fight, the circumstances are different. You know, by the time this fight comes around, Pacquiao has been out of the ring for about a year, and then we know Bradley has been rejuvenated lately with the way he's been fighting. So do you think this is a fight that can really backfire on Pacquiao? 100%. I think that uh, Pacquiao is going to lose this fight. Um, I'm a huge Pacquiao fan. I really am. Um, his run from 2008, from the David Diaz fight to the Marquez fight, was as good as I've I've ever seen as far as a big fight pay-per-view fighter. And, um, you know, during that, those five or six fights, uh, he rarely lost a round. I mean, he was just lights out. But, you know, Pacquiao or his team, whoever is in charge, they always seem to make the counterproductive decision. I just, I never get what they're doing. You know, he's he, he, he he's up 2-0-1 against Marquez. He fights him a fourth time. And Marquez comes in the ring looking like the Incredible Hawk the third time, and he fights him the fourth time with no blood testing, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's just he 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 fights Bradley. You know, he comes to the arena late for the Bradley fight, you know, and he take the fight away from him. It just seems like he's just always making the counterproductive decision, you know. Um, you why would you give a man a chance that you really beat twice? to fight you the third time because he's going to constantly see his style over again. I don't care if you talk about Roy Jones or Sugar Ray Robinson. If somebody fights you enough times, they'll eventually get the hang of it and they'll beat you. Just like if you see a top-level guy sparring every day, it'll be some guy in the gym who's not on his level, but he'll be able to beat him, get the better of him in sparring. One of Pacquiao's gifts is people don't understand his rhythm, so it's really hard to get used to. But Bradley has seen it for 24 rounds. I, I just, I have no idea why you would fight that guy again, knowing that you already beat him really twice, and he's already seen your style. Um, I think they could have made a much better decision with the opponent, but I don't know. For some reason, it just seems like Pacquiao always does that. Now, when you're talking about the counterproductive decision, let's switch gears and talk about the quote-unquote smart business decision because that's what it seems like Mr. Billy Joe Saunders is trying to do as far as this matchup or potential matchup with Golovkin. And they reportedly got offered a career-high payday anywhere between $2 million and over $2 million. And even at this time, he's still saying it's a risky fight. I don't know if I want to take it. I have everything to lose. You know, I just got the belt. I wanted to get your opinion on that mindset because when is the, where is the line between you're making a smart business decision, and you're lowering your legacy and standing as a fighter. Where is that line between the both? Because we know you're a prize fighter. You're not fighting for free. You need to get compensated for putting your life in danger. But where is the balance between that that you see as a trainer that needs to be in place so you know, good fights are not being held up at the negotiating table? Um, that's a great question. I think that, first of all, I think that Billy Joe Sanders should stop talking about it in the media because it doesn't look good when a fighter says that he's not ready. That's something that your team should say. Fighters shouldn't get into that because when you get into that, you know, then you got to publicly turn down the fight. And when the fighter turns down the fight, basically what you're saying is, I can't beat that guy. And once you start talking like that, then that's no good. Um, In all fairness, though, you know, I think, Billy Joe Sanders and his team, they have a good point. You know, David, because Golovkin wants to unify all of the belts, that's Golovkin's um, 
you know, that's his task. You know, they don't have to compensate Golovkin. um, you know, Golden Boy kind of had to uh, – David Lemieux didn't even have a chance to have a title reign. You know, he had to fight Golovkin in his first title fight, you know, just after winning the title. And historically, guys don't usually fight a killer or go into a match where they're the underdog in their first title defense. That's a rare, rare thing that you see in boxing. You know, a lot of times you're allowed to have a showcase defense or two. Um, I'm not saying that that has to be, you know, the custom with every single title reign, but normally you don't have to fight a killer in your very first title defense. And Billy Joe Sanders, you know, um, I can understand why he would say, you know what, let me get a title defense, let me make some money, and then we can revisit this Golovkin thing because Golovkin wants to corner the market and and um, and 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 help hold all of the titles. That doesn't mean that I have to oblige him right away. You know, I do think that, you know, fighters have to definitely think about their legacy, and I'm very, very big on legacy, but you also have to be a little bit reasonable. The man shouldn't have to fight him in his very first title defense. You know, I think that that's a little much to ask a kid that's undefeated to go into his first title defense as the underdog. But I do think at some point he should, you know, be willing to fight him and consider fighting him. Um, and I don't consider it a duck if he says, look, okay, I'm not going to fight you right now. I'll fight you in September or I'll fight you in um, October. You know, I, I don't think that that's a duck to put it off one or two fights and secure maybe an HBO deal or, you know what I mean, something like that. So um, I don't have a problem with him not fighting the guy right away. Everybody doesn't have to do that. But I do think at some point, you know, within the next year, he should be willing to fight him. Gotcha. Now, with that same type of concept going on, let's switch gears and talk about Andre Ward and his search for an opponent. You know, we thought that he was going to be fighting Sullivan Barrera. Then it started going back and forth on Twitter a couple of days ago with Ward coming out and saying, you're not going to get rich off of me, which implies that Barrera was holding it up for more money. Reportedly, he got offered, I believe, somewhere between three hundred and three hundred fifty thousand. and So he's looking to get more than that on Barrera's side. We don't know where it stands at this point. Still going back and forth. From your perspective, if you were in Barrera's corner, do you think it's beneficial what he's doing to try and hold out for more money, or do you think he's playing his hand too heavy considering that it is a big step up? You know, his only name opponents on his resume are a 2005 version of Jeff Lacey and Carlo Marat. Do you think he should hold off, or do you think he's doing the right thing at this point trying to get more money out of Ward for this fight, being that he knows Ward is kind of desperate to get an opponent to build up for that Kovalev fight? Um, damn, that's another good question. I think that, um, you know, first of all, you have to look at the market value. What are guys getting paid to fight guys like the Kovalevs and the Wards and the Triple Gs over there on HBO? And then you have to look at Sullivan Barrera's accomplishments. I mean, because that's how these purses are really determined. So, for example, you will look at what Curtis Stevens made and what, um, uh, let's say, uh, the guy that Kovalev just defended against. I forget his name. He had the Arabic last name. Guys like that, you would fit. You got it. You would figure out what they made, and then you would, your, your number would be comparable to that. And you would also find out what wards the last opponent made. made. Um, from my perspective, three hundred to three fifty. That's a pretty, you know, decent payday for Sullivan Barrera. I don't know what he's personally made, but you know, I would, um, I don't, I would assume that it hasn't been that, you know. So, um, you know, um, I don't know. You know, I don't really like to get into a guy's personal, personal business like that because, I mean, he could wait, and you know, and and Ward may not have an opponent and have to pay the guy. You know what I mean? Or Ward may say, the hell with this, I can find somebody else um, that'll fight me for $300,000, $350,000. So I really, you know, I really don't know. Um, hopefully the fight comes off because I think it's a really good fight. Barrera's a good puncher. And like you said, um, I'm a big Andre Ward fan, but, you know, he he has to get his career, you know, going, man. You know, it, it's always an injury or a layoff at this point in time. He he needs a credible guy in front of him, you know, no matter who it may be. So that may be 
Barrera's um, sticking point. You know, he knows there's not a lot of undefeated guys with a little bit of pedigree around that'll fight for it. So, you know, he make he making hold out for more money. I don't know, but I, I hope we see the fight in March. One thing I haven't heard talked about with Ward too much is, you know, he had the knee injury. He didn't get too much details on it. He just said he had a lot of swelling, and that was the reason why he couldn't fight on the uh, Cotto Canelo undercard. But to me, anytime you're dealing with knee injuries, it can be something to be concerned about. I wanted to ask you, have you ever trained or been around any fighters that have had, I guess, some type of knee injury where there was swelling, but it wasn't that serious? Because to me, it seems like if you're having swelling that bad, it might be a serious thing that requires surgery. And it reminded me of the shoulder injury that he had a couple years ago where he put the surgery off and eventually had to have surgery and sit out a while to correct it. Does your gut tell you that this knee injury might be something serious like that? You know what, man? I don't know. You asked some great questions tonight. It's funny because I um I dislocated my knee playing basketball um in high school twice. My left knee my freshman year and my right knee my senior year. And that's what got me into boxing because you don't have to make cuts like that in boxing. You know, so I started boxing because, you know, um like mentally it kind of freaks you out to make a cut when you're playing basketball. So whenever I hear a fighter getting a knee injury, you know, I always say to myself, what were they doing? Because knee right. injuries are not something common with a boxing move. You know, I'm not saying he couldn't have got it done in some kind of cross training or something like that, but normally fighters don't make cuts like that, and knee injury usually comes from hits or cuts. So I always, when I hear, like, a bad knee injury on a fighter, I always say, what the hell was he doing to get that injury, you know, so, and I'm only saying this to say, I don't know if it's a boxing injury, you know, because if it's not a boxing injury, he should be able to do his boxing moves and not, you know, aggravate it to a point where it can it can hurt his career. Because if you look at a boxer's movements and if you look at things like that, how often are knee, are, are knee injuries common? Uh, uh, a boxer injury is a shoulder um, hyperextended elbows and bad hands, you know, and obviously like scar tissue. But very, very, very rarely do you see boxers with knee injuries. And, you know, oftentimes boxers will get, um, you know, very sore backs because they constantly run and banging on the concrete or, or running kind of makes the spine a little bit um, tender and you'll get uh, injury and you'll, you'll get like sore backs where you need a chiropractor. So whenever I see knee injuries, it you know I, I always say was that a boxing injury? And if it's not a boxing injury, then usually you can overcome it. Because if you Andre Ward had a knee injury back in the day, if I'm not mistaken, um, earlier in his career. So I can um, I can uh, I can see him being able to overcome that. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, so we're going to stick with Ward a little bit. I wanted to touch on some mythical matchups. I know you're real big on that. So I wanted to use Ward in this case, being that, you know, he hasn't been in the ring that often lately over the last couple of years, but we know his pedigree. So I wanted to test it against some of the other all-time great fighters out there. So for Ward, being that he made his name as super middleweight, I wanted to give you two names for him. Number one would be James Tony. How would you see those two matching up as super middle? That's a great fight. Um, a prom James Tony, I would say, is uh, probably around the time that he fought Tim Littles and uh, Prince Charles Williams. And I guess Ward's peak, I guess we would say, you know, uh, Kessler to uh, to Froch. Um It would be a great, great fight. Um, if you twist my arm... I would probably say Tony. Uh, he's a little bit too clean of a puncher. I mean, the thing about Tony is you cannot work him. You know, he's a little bit lazy, but when he's on, you know, obviously I think he will be on against War. Um, damn, that's a tough one, man. Uh, I would pick Tony, but not by a lot, man. I could see War, you know, winning the fight and being able to um, outpoint um, Tony like how Roy Jones did. You know, War uh, actually got a lot of Roy Jones in his game if you look at him when he was younger. The thing is that War can't punch like Roy Jones, though. 
You know, Jones is a light-out puncher, and Ward is physically strong, but he's not like a huge puncher. So if you pick me, if you if you if you twist my arm, you know, put a gun to my head, I said James. I would say James Tony by decision. A really really close tight fight though. One of the things that intrigued me about that fight is kind of trying to imagine who would hold the edge in an inside fight. Because like I said, Ward is very strong. He knows how to fight inside. But do you think that's beneficial against Hello? someone like him? Brad, you there? Uh-oh, I think we lost Brad. He's still in the queue, but I'm not sure what happened with him. So we'll give him a moment to call back. So while we are waiting for uh, Brad to call back, yeah, it looks like his call dropped. Why don't we take a quick commercial break, and we'll bring uh, Brad back in in just a moment. When the mind is ready, the body prepares for war. So next time you engage in battle, protect your hands with the best. War Tape, the original branded tape. Order yours now at wartapebrand.com and see why the enemy will fear you. Wartapebrand.com. We put hands on you. And we're back. Um, we're still waiting for uh, Brad to join us, and here he is again. I will pick him up. Brad, you are back connected. Brad, you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, sorry about that. What I wanted to ask you about that matchup, one of the intriguing things that was hard for me to imagine is who would win the inside battle because we know, like you said, Ward is very strong inside, but we know pe- uh, Tony's pedigree when it comes to inside fighting. Do you think it would be more beneficial for Ward to make it an outside fight because of his speed? Yeah, but you know what's crazy? I don't know if he's faster than Tony. Hmm. Yeah. You know, James, Tony has really, really fast hands, man, and – he punches in combination a little bit better than Andre. Andre really does not punch in, like, a violent offensive combination. He'll throw a couple of jabs and, you know, kind of move in and hit you with a couple of good shots. But James Tony actually punches in, like, vicious combination. You know what I mean? He's a he's a different kind of offensive fighter than what Ward is. So um, um, I'm not so sure that he could beat Ward. Ward could beat him from the outside. I think that Ward would have to move away from Tony, to be honest with you. You know, mm. it's very hard to go towards James Tony. You know, he would kind of want you to come to him. You know, he's murder like that. Watch his fight with um, Prince Charles Williams. He pretty much laid on the ropes the whole fight and beat him half to death. You know, and he did right. the same thing to um, Aram Barkley you know, mm-hmm. um, which is probably his best performances. And Ward's a little better than those guys, but um, I don't know if he could fight um, Tony from the outside. You know, I think he would probably have to do use a lot of movement to beat Tony like the way Roy Jones did. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, and the second matchup for Ward would be the guy that he just missed by a couple of years, and that would be Joe Calzaghe. How would you see those two matching up? Man. You know what, man? I can't call that fight. <laughs> I really can't. I mean, he just missed Kazagi. Literally, just missed him by a year. You know, um, Kazagi retires in 2008, and Ward goes into Super Six in 2009. So he literally mm-hmm. just missed him. Um, um, I can't call that fight because Kazagi had a way of just rising. And being as good as he had to be, and so does Ward. Um, you know, Kazagi runs off some very, very, you know, he doesn't, he, he's not a puncher, but he has a way of kind of controlling you with fast combinations. And Ward has a way of kind of forcing the fight at his own pace. I really don't know who will win that fight, man. I really don't. Uh, man. I don't know. I, I don't want to pick against Andre two times, man. But uh, <laughs> if I mean, I don't know, man. Calzaghe is a hell of a fighter, you know. He did have some trouble with Hopkins, and uh, Ward is um, probably a little bit more of an athletic version of Hopkins. But what's weird is that Calzaghe couldn't really control Hopkins' lead right hand. You know, I was I was watching that fight not too long ago. Hopkins was able to run Calzaghe into a lot of lead right hands until he made an adjustment. Well, Ward 
don't really throw a lead right hand. You know, he's kind of, I'm not going to say he's a one-handed fighter, but he's left-hand dominant. You know what right. I mean? So, I don't know, man. I don't like to not be able to make a pick, but I really don't have a pick in that fight. That's a tough, tough fight to call. Hmm. I agree. i kind of been going back and forth on it. I kind of settled on Calzaghe because of his volume. But like you said, with Ward's counterpunching, you know, he can neutralize that. So it's a tough call either way. That's so a I believe tough call. What would yeah. scare me for Ward, though, in the fight, if I'm thinking about it right now, what would scare me for Ward is that he really don't have a good, like, what you call a, a southpaw right hand. Like, mm-hmm. he controls his southpaws with a left hand. You know what I mean? Like, he knocked out Chad Dawson. You don't really have that southpaw right hand like uh, Bernard and uh, Roy Jones and um, and, um, and Floyd Mayweather have. You know what I mean? Where you kind of right. control the southpaw with, like, a lot of lead, pop shot right hand. That's not really his shot. He's left-hand dominant. So it would be a tough fight stylistically for him because, Kazagi kind of keep you busy, man, with those with those fast flurries that he's stepping and throwing. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. That's a tough one, man. I I, I might lean Kazagi too if he twists my arm, but it, that's a hard call. Definitely. Gentlemen, we have a question from one of the listeners regarding mythical matchup. This question is from Mike Money Two One Four from Brooklyn. He wants to know. Since you're continuing with Andre Ward, what about Andre Ward versus Nigel Ben at 168? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, I take Ward by decision. Um, I think he might have a little bit too much range for Ben. But Nigel Ben was a motherfucker, man. The, 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 the night he beat, I mean, he really, like, reinvented himself at 168. In his rematch with uh, Chris Eubank, he won that fight. That wasn't a draw. And uh, then you got the uh, freaking um, Joe McCullen fight. I mean, I take I would take Ward by maybe a two point decision, but tomorrow I may take Ben. That's a that's a tough fight. Ben had a really good hot streak from about ninety three to ninety five and one sixty eight. The only thing that makes me pause about that matchup is I can see Nigel getting a knockdown, and I wonder how that would influence how War would fight the the remainder of the fight because I could see that happening early, and I wonder how that would change the fight. It's a good I matchup, too. Nigel Ben is a brutal puncher, especially early in the fight. People don't remember came over here for the WBO title and knocked out Iran Barkley in one round. And Barkley ain't an easy dude to fight, man. Nigel Ben wasn't no joke. He should be in the Hall of Fame, actually. It's a shame that he's not. Definitely, definitely. Good question, Mike Money. So to conclude our mythical matchups, I have one more that I was thinking about, and this popped in my mind because I was on Boxing Scene, and they had a brief article about Dmitry Pirog where he allegedly had announced the comeback. It turned out not to be true. They said it came from a fake Twitter account. So he's one of those, in recent years, one of those big what-if stories. If he didn't have the back problem, what could he have done after beating Danny Jacobs? We do know that in 2012, he was scheduled to fight Gennady Golovkin. So that would be the mystical matchup I present at you, Bray. If that matchup would have came off in 2012, how did you see that fight going? Assuming that Pirog, no back problems, same Pirog that we're used to, how would he do against Golovkin? Um, I would take Golovkin. You know, sometimes when a guy has an abbreviated career, things get a little bit exaggerated. But all we know about Pirock is that he knocked out Danny Jacobs. You know, um, from everything that I remember, um, he really wasn't too keen on fighting Golovkin because the people in Europe, they knew Golovkin was a killer long before we knew that he was a killer. So um, I would I would say Golovkin would have beat him. You know, uh, uh, I'm not saying the Pirog would have been easy, but a lot of times, you know, um, when a legend, you know, when a guy dies young before or, or something happens to a guy with an injury or something, you kind of get a little bit overrated because nobody has ever seen him with under adversity. You know what I'm saying? So history always slightly overrates guys who die young or get injured young or things like that. So um, I think Perog was a really good fighter, but 
in all honesty, we just didn't know enough about the guy um, to, to 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 say he can beat a guy like Golovkin. So I would say Golovkin would have beat him. Totally agree with that sentiment. Okay, now we're going to switch gears and talk about some of the matchups that we have this year in January. I call a lot of them just flat-out massacres because they seem one-sided on paper, but as we know in boxing, theater of the unexpected, you never know what happens until two fighters get in the ring. First one I'm going to touch on is the one that's happening at the end of the year, excuse me, end of the year, end of the month, which is Jean Pascal having his rematch against Sergei, Sergei Kovalev on January 30th. Now, a lot of people are worried about Pascal in this fight because this will be his third consecutive tough fight. You know, his last fight against Uniski Gonzalez, you know, he nearly got knocked out early on in the fight, came back and won a controversial decision. Uh, the fight before that was the fight with Kovalev. This would be his third tough fight in a row. Brett, from a trainer's perspective, if you were training Pascal, we're probably assuming he's taking this fight because it's the biggest payday out there for him. But on the flip side, he's probably taking some years off of his career fighting Kovalev again. What is that line between that payday, getting the most money, but also trying to preserve your career? Would you have recommended that he would take this fight at this stage of his career? Um, you know what? It depends on how much he was getting paid, man, to be honest with you. Um uh he uh I actually almost trained Pascal. Um I just never talked about it in the media, but uh we actually worked out up here in Philadelphia, um, you know, a few months ago. Um I know his manager. And um I mean it's a really, really tough fight. Uh if you ask me who I think is gonna win, obviously Kovalev is the favorite. Um I would say it's about 75-25 in Kovalev's favor. Um, he put a bad beating on Pascal. But it wasn't a one-way action. You know, Pascal got his uh, pound of flesh in also. And I'm going to tell you something, man, that I noticed about Kovalev. I think he's a killer. I think he's all that that they say he is. But I don't think Kovalev takes a great punch. Uh-huh. Even when he gets hit and he... He responds well to punishment. If you hit him, he'll step right back to you and open up. But he freezes him up for a second. Hopkins ran him into a couple of shots. I know Darnell Bone hurt him. He's been knocked down before. You know, there's rumors about him being knocked out in spar. And I thought that Kovalev, I thought that um, Pascal was able to hurt him twice. I don't think Kovalev had. I think everything else in this game is, you know, an A. But I think he has. Um, I don't think he has the best set of whiskers in the world. It's just hard to get to him because he's a big-time puncher, you know, and he has a good sense of range, and he don't let you get too close to him. So Pascal still has a puncher's chance, but if you're asking me who I think is going to win the fight, um, you got to go with Kovalev after the beating that he gave him the first time. Now, I know we're still speculating, but do you think it's just a chin issue or do you think it's a bully mentality that we've seen with some fighters like Sonny Liston and before where if you really go back at them, that's what kind of makes them freeze a little bit, not expecting that type of fire coming back at them? Um, I don't know. You know, we the boxing ring is a truth machine. we got to see more of them. You know what I mean? I'll tell you one thing. He's definitely ambitious, and he definitely don't care who he fights. You know, in this era, he's probably the most willing fighter around, you know what I mean? He'll fight anybody, anywhere in their hometown, you know, he's looking to fight Pascal, Stevenson, and Ward. I mean, that's just unheard of in this era, a guy that's willing to do that. Um, So uh, um, I'm not going to say that he's a bully, but, you know, a lot of times taking the chin is is, is a genetic disposition, you know what I mean? Some guys can take a punch and some guys can't. I mean, you can acquire the ability to take punishment, you know, do some neck exercises and jaw exercises. And obviously, you know, as you spar, your body gets tougher and you build up a resistance for it. But, you know, certain people just can't take a punch. And he has a a really unique-looking chin, man. And your chin has a lot of nerves in it, you know what I mean? And it's a big target. And I watch him get hit and I watch that fight. And it's something that I don't think a lot of experts are picking up on. But I don't think Kovalev takes a great shot. We honestly don't. And I've heard some stories about him getting knocked out cold and spar. You know, so um it's definitely against a guy like Pascal. Pascal got a little pop and he's been in there with him, you know. I, I don't rule out that Pascal could could clip him. 
Interesting, interesting. All right, so moving on to one of the other matchups that we have this month, we have Deontay Wilder defending his WBC title against Archer Stilka. A lot of people see that being one-way action. Uh, do you see anything possibly different in that fight happening between those two? No, I think I think Wilder has improved a lot um, since uh, his title winning performance against uh, Stavern. You know, I think those 12 rounds did him some good, and uh, I think Wilder is going to knock um, Spilka out in the first half of the fight brutally. I just don't think Spilka can escape his right hand. I think Wilder Wilder has a very, very fast first step for a heavyweight. Um, you know, the only question that I have about Wilder is, um, you know, was is he is he taking a guy like Spoker serious? Because I look at weights on all fighters, even heavyweights. Heavyweights have their optimum weights too, and it's funny because he won the title at two nineteen against um, Bermain Stavern, and then after that he was like ten pounds heavier. So you know, so I don't know if he took those guys serious or what, but. 10 pounds from one fight to the next is a lot. So, you know, that's my only question is if he's, if he's training hard and taking things serious. But if he is, I think he should knock Spoke out. Got it, got it. So we have a few questions to run by you. Uh, first question is from uh, DeAndra, actually. She's asking, with the victory and Fury and Klitschko fighting again doing a rematch. Can Wilder get in another fight before the end of the year? I'm assuming that's probably going to be Pavekin. Do you see any other possible fight for him besides that that would be viable? Um, Sure. The winner of the undercard fight with uh, Charles Martin in Glasgow, because then that means he would have two titles. You know, he could unify with the winner of that fight. Let's go right into that matchup. How do you see that fight going? Um, you know, I really don't know a lot about Charles Martin. I saw him fight. You know, he's decent. Um, I don't think he's on. Uh, he's a big guy, but you know, he doesn't seem to have the physicality that uh Wilder or um or Anthony Joshua or Klitschko have. You know, he's not like a big, imposing kind of guy like that. And um, Glasgow. Um, I've watched Glasgow lose twice and not have the decisions go against him in his Malik Scott fight and in his uh, Steve Cunningham fight. So, um, you know, it's hard to win a decision against him, you know. I wasn't blown away by either guy. Um, If you twist my arm, I guess maybe um, Charles Martin will win the fight, but I I, I don't really know who's going. I I don't know a lot about either one of those guys. I had to jump in, guys. Um, our tweeting got Sullivan Barrera a little bit excited. I guess he's a very avid follower of yours, Brad. Sullivan Barrera mm-hmm. thought we were breaking news that he got he is getting the fight against Andre Ward. So he tweeted back and said he accepted the fight. No, this is the Foot Locker commercial version. He didn't accept the fight, Sullivan Barrera. I'm sorry. We're not breaking news on the show tonight. Tell him I'm sorry, man. Tell him I'm sorry. I hope the brother get the fight, man, and get his big payday. Oh, he got his notifications ready for anything that says Andre Ward. He's on it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tell him I'm sorry about that. Yeah, he saw the hashtag and got really excited. I'm so sorry. Well, DeAndre, <laughs> you tell him I'm sorry, man. That's a big dude. I don't want no trouble, man. <laughs> oh, I did. I interviewed him after he won the Carl Morad fight night. Uh, he, he'll be okay. I'll keep my door locked. Hello? Uh, We're there. So, next question for you. We have another heavyweight fight on the 23rd with Amir Mansour taking on Dominic Brazil. So, we know Mansour is coming off at a draw, a controversial draw, against Gerald Washington. And we know Brazil Mm. is trying to atone for that fight he had against Fred Cassidy. Most people are picking Mansour to win the fight. Do you see any possibility of an upset there? Um, yeah, I think Mansoor will win the fight. Um, I think Mansoor is going to win that fight, and I wouldn't be surprised if he won by knockout. Um, you know, I mean, age is always a factor, you know, and he is over 40. Whenever you're dealing with a fighter over 40, you never know what you're going to get in the ring. But um, Dominic Brazil just gets hit so clean. You know, he has really, really poor reaction time, man. Um 
sometimes people think that the bigger heavyweights are the better ones, but, um, you know, um, I've always believed that when you're too big, you just become a big target. He's not very mobile. Um, so I think um, Mansoor, I actually think Mansoor pulls that fight out. Agreed, agreed. Oh, hold that thought. We're going to go to a quick commercial break, and we'll come back with any questions and talking more boxing on the Bread and Red Real Boxing Talk Show. Are you looking for a website that has all the latest and upcoming boxing events plus unique and stylish boxing shirts and hoodies for men and women? Go check out RagingBabe.com. It's your one-stop shop for the most current boxing info and fresh boxing apparel for him and her. Shop online today at RagingBabe.com. Use the promo code RB20 at checkout for 20% off your entire purchase today. That's code RB20 for 20% off your entire purchase today. Only at RagingBabe.com. So join the movement and see why attitude and loyalty become passion and determination. Only at RagingBabe.com. We are back with the Bread and Red Thrill Boxing Talk Show, talking boxing with Stephen Breadman Edwards. I'm your host, Ismael Abdusalam of BeatsBoxingMayhem.com. For our next topic, I want to switch gears a little bit. I was looking at just kind of the passing of the torch matches we've had in boxing history. Um, that's not something that the older fighters, you know, like to go through, but if you're older fighting, fighting top competition, eventually you're going to run into a younger fighter that just has your number. And usually that mm-hmm. fight is a springboard for that younger fighter to kind of take center stage. We saw with Marciano mm-hmm. and Lewis, Ali Holmes. You can go throughout history. You can go all the way back to John O'Sullivan and Jim Corbett. But mm-hmm. looking at history these days, it seems like because of the way the business is set up, it's allowing the older fighters to be a little bit more selective and to actually go out, quote-unquote, on their own terms. You know, we saw with Pacquiao, didn't have to fight Crawford, had options, he's fighting Bradley. That may backfire Mm -hmm. on him, but let's consider that an easier option. We saw with Floyd, he had his pick of any PBC welterweight, decided to go with uh, Andre Berto, a little bit easier of a matchup on his way out. So those younger fighters aren't getting that rub that they normally get to kind of push them forward. Even Mayweather got that with De La Hoya. So my question to you, Brad, do you think the fact that these younger fighters coming up today are not getting that rub from the superstars, they're kind of having to make their name really on their own, how much of a detriment do you think that is to the overall sport of boxing to not have those error transition type fights that we used to see, you know, in decades past? Um. That is a really, really, really good um, analysis of things, man, um, because I think that you need that fight. You know, um, you you talk about, like, that fight usually spawns a superstar, you know. Canelo got it a little bit against Cotto, you know, in his last fight, but and uh, Tyson Fury kind of got it against Vladimir, but... You know, with all of the picking and choosing in this era, you don't see, like, the older guy, you know, have to fight like the young killer. You know what I mean? They just don't do that. But um, in all fairness, though, Canelo could have had it against Floyd. You know, Floyd was about 36 years old when they fought. He just didn't win, you know. But overall, I would like to see it a little bit more. Um, But this era kind of forces the younger guys to fight each other to become that superstar or become that star, you know. So, you know, they got to get it a little bit harder because it's so much, you know, politics and, you know, manipulation and, you know, picking and choosing, you know, for, for those kind of fights. But but, but it's true. Um, you don't kind of see the passing of the torch fights um, as often. But I do think that we saw it with um, Canelo and Cotto and uh, Fury and um, – and Klitschko, but I would definitely like to see it a little bit more. You know, there's a lot of guys that are hanging around that, you know, have more notoriety and they're more well-known than the younger guys. But if you put them in the ring with the younger guys, the younger guys would definitely beat them, you know what I mean? And But they just don't – they're not made to fight them and they don't really have the opportunity to fight them. So you can't get the – um exposure that you would need. One of them, one of the fights that stand out to me is um the fight that uh Terry Norris got with Ray Leonard. You know, that fight mm-hmm. turned him into a big star. And also Oscar De La Hoya, they were smart enough to throw him in there with Julio Cesar Chavez and that fight turned him into a big star. You know, but 
for some reason in this era, you know, they just don't they don't give these these young guys that kind of fight, you know. Um I don't know what it's gonna take, you know, it's almost a shame, but uh I would definitely like to see it happening more often. Speaking of those young guys, we have a few that are trying to make their stake or stake their claim to be the top young gun with PBC in the first half of the year. First matchup we forgot to mention will be Danny Garcia versus uh, Robert Guerrero. Now, Garcia, he did a conference call with the media last week, and he just went on record and said bluntly that I see this fight going to five rounds and me winning by knockout. Most people see it being a brutal knockout. You see any type of way Guerrero can not only win the fight, but could he even make it competitive at this stage of his career with the wars he's been through? I mean, you know what? As a trainer, you take everybody as a threat, and you have to view everybody as a threat. Um, I think Danny's going to win the fight too, but, um, you know, if um, no fighter is unbeatable, you know, there's things that you can do to Danny, you know what I mean? And um, I'm sure Guerrero's been watching the tape of Mauricio Herrera and uh, Lamont Peterson, and, you know, he may he may be able to make it competitive. Um, I just personally think that Guerrero gets hit too much. And Danny is a huge puncher. You know, you don't want him hitting you constantly. Um, and I think that Guerrero, not not only does he get hit too much, he gets hit too cleanly. You you want to take something off of those shots. You don't want him. You don't want him to hit you flush like that. And that Keith Thurman fight, he was getting hit right on the money, clean with with big shot after big shot, and that's not good. So um, um, I don't know if Danny's gonna knock him out. I think he should, but I definitely think Danny will win the fight. And one thing I was thinking about with Danny, him winning this fight will put him in a good position for the winner of this next fight, which hopefully comes off. As of right now, it's scheduled for March, but that's up in the air. You know, it's been scheduled for January last year. We've all had these dates concerning Keith Thurman and Sean Porter. That's a fight that, of course, would be very intriguing for most boxing fans. At this point, at this stage where both of them are at, how do you see that fight going? And if you had to pick a winner, who would you go with? Um, I think it's a 50-50 fight. Um, it's not a super fight, but it's a really, really high-quality matchup. Um, I think that Sean Porter wants to fight Keith Thurman more than Keith Thurman wants to fight Sean Porter. Um, mm. um, I think the both of their styles are telling me for each other. I think... Um, I don't think Thurman is the seek and destroy killer that he was advertised to be. You know, I know seek and destroy killers. Tommy Hearns is a seek and destroy killer. You know, Terry Norris can be a seek and destroy killer. Joe McClellan is a seek and destroy killer. I think that Keith Thurman is a heavy-handed boxer. He's kind of skittish. He fights a little like Ocelino Freitas where he moves around. And then he wants you to come into him, and then he jumps into you, and it kind of accentuates his power. And you can kind of make him move too much because he's really not efficient with his energy. You know what I mean? He moves a little bit too much. So I think Sean could put good pressure on him. But at the same time, Sean, um, he has bad scar tissue, and he has like a, 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 he's a little sloppy with his style. He's really not neat with his pressure. If you look at Sean and look at, say, a guy like Roman Gonzalez, you see a totally different type of pressure with Gonzalez where he's neat and he's precise with it and he's efficient with it, where Sean is kind of like rough and he's falling into you and, you know, his fights, you know, they can be a little bit ugly at times. But he's very effective. You know, he's a he's a really good fighter. Um, right now, you know, I think Sean is at a high with the Broner fight. I think that uh, Keith, uh, if I'm not mistaken, his last fight was against Colazzo, and he was brutally hurt with a body shot. Um, and I think that Sean's just a little bit more willing. Uh, I, I would say Sean would edge him. I think he can make it look like Keith's running instead of boxing because Keith moves so much. When you over-move, a good, smart pressure can make it look like you're running instead of boxing. And I think Sean could figure out a way to do that and kind of make Keith move too much, and the judges will award him the rounds for coming forward. Because Sean's definitely going to come forward 
and Keith's definitely going to move around and try to run Sean in the big shots. Um, the fight could go either way. It's a really, really close fight, but it just seems that Sean is a little bit more willing right now, and it just seems like he's uh, he's the more confident of the two. Like It seems like he wants to fight better, like he sees or knows something in Keith, and it doesn't seem that Keith is um, too sure about taking the fight against Sean. I think that's you know, one of the reasons for the um, delays. So um, right now, and I say we're showing with Edge, but it's a really close fight. I could probably give you a more accurate assessment as it gets closer. Perfect, perfect. All right, so we're going to switch gears again. We're going to go back to uh, Floyd Mayweather briefly. Now, he was in the news the last week because he had made some comments talking about he felt there's a double standard in combat sports when it pertains to black fighters who are cocky and considered arrogant as opposed to white fighters like Ronda Rousey and Conor McGregor, how they're perceived. And he ended the statement by just briefly saying that he feels there's still racism in sports and in particular boxing. Uh, Conor McGregor, he took a little bit of offense to that and said that it wasn't necessary to make a comment like that and to bring race into the equation. From a trainer's perspective, what you've seen in the sport that's dominated mostly by people of color, whether it's uh, black or Latino descent, how do you feel racism is still a part of boxing or is it still a part of boxing just from your perspective as a trainer, what you've seen going on around as far as what's written, how people are marketed, and things of that nature in the sport? Um, I mean, racism exists. You know, um, I get, I still get nasty emails to this day. You know, um, I'm not a um, person that plays the race car, you know, and say that every time something goes wrong, it has to be racial because that's not true. You know what I mean? Sometimes things just go wrong because they are wrong. But, um, you know, um, I definitely think racism exists in, in, um, in sports in general and, um, and it exists in boxing, you know, um, it's just, it's just something that just, as a uh, community, we just have to overcome, you know, um, you'll hear somebody, I mean, there's a reason why there's fights in San Antonio and different areas like that, because you have to, boxing has always been promoted by region and race. I mean, just think about it. You know what I mean? Um, If you get a good Latino fighter, they'll get promoted a certain kind of way. And if you get a good black fighter, they'll get promoted a certain kind of way. And it's not always, you know, a slight, you know, people, people say that black people don't support their fighters the way they should. And that's probably true, you know, but then you have cases like Adrian Broner and um, guys like Devin Alexander and Corey Spinks who've been able to sell out their um, hometowns and even Andre Ward, who people say can't sell but he does pretty good out there in Oakland, you know, so it's, it's, it's a lot of factors, man, in, in promoting the fighter. And there's a lot of factors in why race, you know, is a big issue. Uh, but I definitely think it exists. I mean, you know, um, you know, I don't know why Floyd made his comments and, you know, I, I, I don't know Floyd, so uh, I can't tell you what was going through his mind. And I don't know. I didn't even read the statement, to be honest with you, so I don't know how he uh, decided to articulate it and what examples did he use, but there are some things that happen in boxing that are um, racially motivated, but, you know, you just try not to... The thing that you don't want to do as a minority is play the race card on every single situation because then, you know, you ruin your credibility because everything... Every time you have a hardship, it's not because of race. You know, there could be other things that are holding you back. But um, it does exist in sports and it does exist in boxing. It's just something that we're just going to have to um, deal with and overcome. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, we're going to wrap up soon, but I had two more questions for you. So I'm going to run this at you first. I saw a couple, uh, maybe a couple days ago, you mentioned you were going to go see Southpaw. So I'm assuming you've seen Creed already. Between those two, mm-hmm. which is the best boxing movie from a trainer's perspective? Mm-hmm. Come on, man. You know that's a tough one, man, with, with, with Creed being in Philly. Um, I like them both. Uh, I like them both. I um, I enjoyed the Obviously, Creed was a, was a Philly thing, so, you know, I got to see certain things, um, you know, the gyms in Philly and 
one of the guys that was doing pads. You know, I've seen him around a couple of the gyms. Um, and uh, But uh, Southpaw was probably a little bit more realistic storyline. You know, um, the kid from Creed to get the title shot like that, you know, that usually doesn't happen. So I'll say mm-hmm. Southpaw was a little bit more of a realistic storyline. Um, as far as the fight scenes, um, I say Southpaw got it by a little bit, but not much. You know, it wasn't it it, it wasn't much. And uh, in Creed, obviously Rocky has the best training scenes and music you can buy. So um, it's about even. You know, I like them both a lot. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it, both of them were really good. Uh, uh, it was about even, uh, but I think that uh, Southpaw's uh, storyline was a little bit more realistic because the guy from Creed didn't have any fights. So, um, you know, yeah. I, I like them both, though. I'm a big Rocky fan, by the way. I like one, two, three, and four. Thank you. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right, so my last question for you is going to be a little detailed, so stay with me, but I think you'll like this one. So I'm going to pull a little bit from some of the mythical matchups that we did. So I'm going to hop in my DeLorean. I'm going to go back to 1989, and I'm going to pick up Julian Jackson right after his knockout of his rating and Terry Norris. I'm going to get him in the car with me, bring him to 2016 with his WBC title, and plant him right at junior middleweight. So he's already Mm -hmm. champion. So between him, you have him at champion. You also have Laura. He has WBA. You have Charles that has the IBS. And you have Liam Smith that has the WBL. So now what I'm going to do is we're going to assume Mr. Al Heyman is going to sit you down, sit you and J-Rock down and say, guess what? I've got all the champions. They've all agreed. You can make the same money fighting any of those champions. You get to pick which one you go at first. Who do you decide mm-hmm. to pick? If I'm Julian or if I'm telling him what to do. If you're telling them what to do, who do you think you would pick and who do you think he would pick, Julian? Uh, I think Julian Williams would pick. I think he would pick Charlo because they've been constantly compared all the time. And, you know, he believes he's better and he wants to prove it. And um, the people, you know, know, that are all with us, you know, some they they they're always in the lobbies at a hotel comparing, you know. And if you ask twenty kids from PVC who's better, ten to say Charlo and ten to say Julian, and you know, Julian wants to prove that he's better than Charlo. They're the same age, they came up at the same time, and it's kind of a you know, it's a comp- you know, fighters are competitors, so he wants to prove that he's better. So they have they don't have a negative history, but they do have a um, competitive history. Um, me personally, uh, if I'm picking out of those guys in order, I would pick, uh, Charlo, um, just cause I'm just confident that he would beat him. You know, I just, you know, it's something that I see in Charlo. I won't say it publicly, but I just know Julian will win the fight. And I was, I've always known that he will win uh second and I would pick Liam Smith. Um, third will be Lara. And fourth will be Julian Jackson. I mean, he's a freaking lights out, brutal puncher. You don't want to get hit by him. He can, he can. Uh, Buster Drayton. Funny you mentioned Buster Drayton. Buster Drayton trains at our gym. He still trains right now. And you know, he always like plays around and acts to spar Julian and stuff. We have two IBF champions in our gym, and Buster Drayton and Robert Hines. They both train. Robert Hines is a trainer, and Buster Drayton comes and works out every day. So, um, uh. That would be an uh, interesting fight. If Julian Jackson was around the day, brother, he wouldn't get no fights. <laughs> Where right. these kids at? I mean, he literally wouldn't get no fights. I mean, he would be. I remember when he fought Joe McCullough, he was 46 and 1 with 43 knockouts. So he definitely wouldn't be getting no work uh, in this era. But, you know, I, we, I, I would, we would fight him. I mean, he wasn't invincible. He did get knocked out a, a few times, and uh, you could outbox him. He just was a really hard puncher. But out of those four, that would be my pick. It would be Charlo, Liam Smith, um, Lara, and then uh, Julian Jackson. Excellent, excellent. Well, that is all the questions I've had today. Uh, Brett, I appreciate your time. You're very insightful as usual. Before we go, uh, DeAndre, do you have any questions in the queue, anything you wanted to run? I think that I am good. I am looking forward to seeing Julian get in there 
you know, pretty soon. I have a feeling something is coming down the pipe. Brett, always we a do. pleasure to have I you just... with us. I always learn something new whenever you are in the mix somehow. It's my old great job as usual. And Sullivan Barrera, let me publicly apologize for having you believe that you got the Andre Ward fight. I'm so sorry. We were just discussing the merits. But, you know, the fact that he's on Twitter and engaged, his English is going to be pretty good. How that English translates into real life from social media is another thing. But just good to see him active and engaged, and, you know, we'll see what happens with him and Andre Ward. Yes. Um, thank you, guys. Um, I, I didn't. I can't really um, go into detail, but we got a um, really big announcement that should be coming up in about a week. But you got to mm. keep these things quiet, you know. So um, I, uh, I know that you probably wanted to ask me, so I can't really talk about it now. But you know, sometimes next week we'll have a big announcement. Um, so you guys should be. I'll, I'll make sure I give you guys the news first. Oh, that's what's up. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate that. Yep, you got it. All right, Ismail, later, my man. Appreciate it, brother. You have a good night. Good night, everybody. Take care. You're now ready to real boxing talk with Ismail.